chapter one, verse 14. Uh, this is the word of God. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I want to talk tonight on the subject of prayer and the early church in uh, two parts. First of all, we're going to talk about uh, what did the church do in prayer? How did the church pray? Prayer in the early church. And then secondly, I want to talk about what happens in prayer in the second part. What actually happens in the spiritual world uh, when the church is praying? Now, in our verse here in verse 14, chapter one of the book of Acts, you'll note that after uh, Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven, that the church begins to pray. And one of the first things they do is they give themselves to prayer. It says they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And notice this is a ministry of both men and women. And it notes here also Mary, the mother of Jesus, and also his brothers. His brothers apparently did come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, that You know, in the Gospel of John, there was resistance by the brothers at one point in Jesus's earthly ministry. And yet, by God's grace, uh, they came to faith in Jesus Christ themselves. And what are they doing? Well, they're praying. This is something that the early church did a lot. If you look at verse 24 in chapter one, it says they prayed and uh, they gave themselves to prayer as they were looking to replace uh, Judas. If you go on in Acts chapter two, we get the same idea in verse 46, chapter two, day by day. What is the early church doing? Continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And then in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. So they were continuing in the temple with uh, teaching, preaching, but also uh, by way of prayer. John chapter John three, Acts three. Uh, John and Peter go into the temple and it, Luke tells us it's called the hour of prayer, which they were going. You go on to Acts chapter four. Notice here how many note, just notice how many times Luke is talking about prayer. It's almost in every chapter here in verse 24 of Acts. Uh, the church, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God. So they give praise to God. And with one accord, they said, Oh, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And it goes on and they they quote Psalm two there uh, down in verse thirty one. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. Uh, we see in uh, Acts chapter six, verse four. Why is the office of deacon created so that the apostles and elders can give themselves to prayer. Verse four, chapter six, verse four. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Sinclair Ferguson does note. Notice that prayer comes first. It's inspired in the Holy by the Holy Spirit. That prayer here is mentioned before the word. Interesting. We will devote ourselves to prayer. One, two and two, the ministry of the word. Uh, verse six. And they brought before the apostles, these deacons, after praying they laid their hands on them. You could go on to the end of chapter seven, Acts seven. Stephen, we are told as he is being stoned, he calls on the Lord, said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he cried out with a loud voice. Uh, also in Acts chapter eight. Uh, 
It says that Peter and John came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Those who had heard the preaching. Uh, and, and it just goes on. I'll just give you some, a few more examples. Uh, Saul's converted. Acts chapter nine. What's the evidence that he's truly converted? Well, verse 11. Here the Lord is uh, telling uh, Ananias to go and lay hands on Paul. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called straight and inquire uh, at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. And, And what that is, one of the evidences here that he's really come to know the Lord is he's praying. You know, that's one of the evidences still today. That, that the Lord has really gripped somebody and brought them to faith in Jesus Christ. Is that person begins to pray. Just as a newborn baby begins to cry out when it's brought safely into this world. So it is with a newborn Christian. When they are born again by the Holy Spirit, they begin to cry out to the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, verse 40. Peter sent them all out, knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. He prayed and God brought healing to Tabitha Dorcas. Acts chapter 10. uh, We are told that Cornelius was a godly man. He prayed to God continually, Luke tells us. And then notice here that when an angel comes and visits Cornelius, what is it that he says to Cornelius? And he said to him, your prayers, this is verse four, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Wouldn't you love an angel to say that to you? That Cornelius, your, your prayers, your, your giving has come before God. Uh, same chapter, verse nine. On the next day, as they were on their way approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Peter's praying at lunchtime. Uh, and that's when he gets the call to go and visit Cornelius. Uh, just a couple more. We'll keep moving. Acts 11. Peter began speaking. This is him explaining it. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance and I saw a vision. Uh, notice here when Peter is arrested in chapter 12, Acts chapter 12. Verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church. And then also in uh, verse 12, same chapter. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Peter's arrested. He's in prison. The church is praying for him. Peter gets out. And what are they doing? They're praying. And he shows up at the prayer meeting. In Acts chapter 13, they fasted and prayed before they sent the missionaries out on the first missionary journey. And so we have all these examples of prayer. Acts chapter 16. We are told on the Sabbath day uh, that the people went outside the gate by the riverside. We were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So there are all these passages and more in the history of the early church that one of the signs of this church was that it was a church that was always at prayer. And I want to talk a little bit about that because 
That is probably one of the things that is missing. If there is a missing note in the piety of contemporary evangelicalism. And even in the pastoral ministry, it is being devoted to prayer. Some have suggested that too much ministry is being done where prayer is kind of the antecedent. Uh, Prayer is just something almost put on as uh, an auxiliary part rather than being the the very basis of out of which we do a ministry. Um, The epistles are filled with prayer as well in Romans chapter 12, for example, verse 12. Romans 12, 12, we are told that we are to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation and devoted to prayer. Paul will use those very same words in Colossians 4, 2. We are to be devoted to prayer. Now, that is not to say, boys and girls, for example, that you do nothing but prayer, but that prayer is a part of everything with which we do. That is, everything we do, we do with prayer as Christians. The idea is that as I'm washing the dishes, I use it as a time to lift up my heart. We were talking about Thanksgiving this morning, and we can thank God for dirty dishes, because when the dishes are dirty, that means we had food on the table that day. Uh, we, we can give thanks to God as we go about mowing the lawn, as we do the laundry, keep lifting up our heart, thanking God for these things. We begin our days with prayer, uh, communing with the Lord when we get out of bed and we, we have a cup of coffee. We lift up our hearts to the Lord and we uh, pray when we go about uh, our, our work at work. We pray for the Lord's blessing in the workplace. Sinclair Ferguson has said that many of your bosses think they're great bosses because they have no idea that you as an employee are devoting yourself to prayer as you work. They think they're just great. They think they're, the reason you're working out so well is is because they're a great boss and they have no idea that it's really because you are praying for the Lord's blessing on the things that you're doing. Uh, in Romans chapter 15 Uh, In verse 30, the Apostle Paul says, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So we are also to be praying not only about our work, our business, the things that we're doing at home, but also we need to remember those who are serving in the ministry, particularly the missionaries. Paul is writing as a missionary here and he is asking us to pray with him and for him. In this chapter, we are to be devoting ourselves to prayer for those who are bringing the gospel uh, to countries that don't have the same opportunities that we have here. And so uh, let me ask you tonight, how many of you are praying uh, for your missionaries? Where are they? We have um, missionary cards. They're somewhere in this messy pulpit. And uh, if you would like some. Uh, They're available in the foyer. You go out, turn left, and on the shelf, right to the left, you'll find missionary cards. And uh, please take a packet home with you and use those. Uh, It has pictures of them on the front, on the back. It says specific things you can be praying for and has the names and also the anniversary dates and the birthdays of of all the missionaries there. The Apostle Paul um, also In the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 11 writes this, For I have been informed, wait a minute, 
excuse me, that's 2 Corinthians, sorry. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 11. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Here again, he's asking the church to be at prayer for uh, the work of missions. Later in that same letter, chapter 9, verse 11. We talked about this. Earlier this morning, that by giving you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. That is through your prayers, through your giving, what's happening? More prayer is going out. The more we give and the more we pray, the more praying and giving that goes on because people are being brought to Christ in other places. And when more people are brought to Christ, that means more people are praising the Lord. More people are giving thanks to God. In verse 14 of that same chapter, Paul says, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you. So the and then it says it comes back to you that as you pray for others and you give and the gospel goes out. Well, these people often then end up praying for you in return. I remember um, the church in Chattanooga uh, received a gift uh, from the church in Uganda once, uh, which I thought was an amazing thing to think about that they in return out of their gratitude for the missionaries that had been sent, sent a gift back to uh, Cornerstone OPC many years ago. In First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, chapter one. And look with me at verse Hold on. Now, I, I put that down wrong. I don't know what verse that is. Let's try chapter three. Hmm. Or not. All right. Well, I know this one. First Timothy two one. Let's do that one. First Timothy, chapter two, verse one, in the pastoral epistles, we see the importance of prayer. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and for all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So here Paul is telling his younger colleague, Timothy, that uh, part of his ministry is to be involved in prayer, not just only for those in the church, but those outside the church, for those even who are reigning and ruling so that the gospel can go on. Uh, it, you know, it's very difficult. Now, God can do all things, but ordinarily speaking, war does make it difficult to spread the gospel. Uh, we often have to bring our missionaries home. When, when World War II broke out, um, many of our missionaries had to come off the field. Uh, so we, we need to take that seriously, pray, pray for peace. Uh, so that the gospel can spread. Now, God can do all things. One of our missionaries did a great work on the eve of World War Two because he was arrested. Uh, he was suffering with the Koreans and the Japanese came and they put him in prison. 
And and that led to the furtherance of the gospel. So I'm not saying God can't work. We know even in the Civil War, there were great revivals taking place in the Civil War. But the ordinary means is for God to use civil peace uh, to bring about the growth of his church. In Second Timothy, chapter one and verse three, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night. So Paul Echoing the language of morning and evening sacrifices, prayers morning and night. Paul is praying. And there's a lot more. We see it in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Mark chapter one, verse thirty five. Jesus is getting up early before dawn, giving himself to prayer. Uh, He's praying before he does miracles sometimes, lifting up his eyes to heaven, praying. He he prays before he breaks the bread. Uh, we, We see Christ. Uh, giving himself to prayer before he goes to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus himself, as our Lord and Savior, was giving himself to prayer. Now, I want to spend uh, the remainder of our time here about what happens in prayer. All this talk, uh, an example of prayer, but what about what actually does happen? Now, I want to begin actually by going to the last book of the Bible here. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter five, because in the book of Revelation, often what happens is that the Apostle John kind of pulls the curtain back and you get to see what's really going on in in heaven. So Revelation chapter five and verse eight. Now, John says here in this verse, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Now, listen to this, boys and girls, young people, these golden bowls full of incense. And what's what are in what's in this? What's in the golden bowls, which are the prayers of the saints. So what is John telling us here? John is telling us that when you pray in your room by yourself, when you pray in the family room with your family, when you pray here at the church, that what the Lord does is he takes your prayers and he adds them into these giant bowls in heaven. That's the picture here. Now, this is, of course, a very highly figurative book. We don't know if there are literally bowls here, but that is what we are to understand. Okay. Um, this is literal figurative language. <laughs> and your prayers basically are being collected in heaven. And what happens? They pour those prayers out on the altar of incense. Now, what was the altar of incense in the Old Testament? Well, the altar of incense was that little place uh, where the fragrant aroma went up before the very uh, Ark of the Covenant before the presence of God in the Holy of Holies and the priests would add the incense. And in the Old Testament, they had that there was a, a very special recipe that nobody was allowed to repeat. Nobody was allowed to mix the certain spices in the proportions that were used in the word of God. And it was it was to be holy incense and it would be put in there and it would burn and, and this fragrant aroma would go up. And what this is, means is that your prayers are like a fragrant aroma to the Lord. 
The Lord enjoys your prayers. The Lord enjoys your prayers. When you come to him with love and sincerity and faith in him and in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the father takes delight in your prayers. Now, look at chapter eight, Revelation chapter eight, because there's more to this story. Revelation chapter eight, verse three, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him. Now, I just told you what that incense is, right? So that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which is which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God Out of the angel's hand. So here the prayers again are poured out into the altar. The smoke, the fragrant aroma goes up before God. And verse five, then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This is the point here that John wants you to see. Your prayers go up. God takes those prayers, he adds them to the altar, comes up as a fragrant aroma before God, and then God commands that fire be cast back down on the earth in answer to those prayers. That God does things in response back down here on earth because you were praying. Now, God is sovereign and God has planned everything from the beginning to the end. Yet... In God's sovereign economy, he has also ordained the means to the end. And the means that God has ordained to bring about the eternal decrees of God are your prayers and mine. So your prayers are are part of God's plan to bring about his kingdom and his purposes on the earth. God uses his prayers, uses rather your prayers, prayers of his people To bring about his purposes. When you don't pray, you are not a Calvinist. You're a hyper Calvinist. Which is no Calvinist at all. Calvinists who believe in the absolute sovereignty of God are praying people. We pray Because God is sovereign. We pray. To a God who has planned everything from the beginning to the end, because we know he has planned everything from the beginning to the end, including the prayers of his church. Many people want to ask if God is sovereign, why do I pray if God has ordained everything from the beginning to the end? Why pray? And the answer is because he's ordained everything from the beginning to the end, which would mean he's ordained your prayers. We pray because God is sovereign. Look, if God was not sovereign, then you should ask the question, why pray? That's why you would ask that question. If you don't know whether God is sovereign If you're not sure God is sovereign, then I could see why you'd be hesitant to commit hours to prayer. 
Because you're like, well, maybe I'm wasting my time. Maybe this is a fruitless endeavor. But it's because we know God is sovereign. He delights in our prayers. He wants the prayers of his people. He treats it as incense before him and he takes fire from the altar and he casts it back down in the earth in response. And yes, I do believe as a Calvinist, God sometimes doesn't do things because we don't pray. That that God doesn't advance his kingdom. Because we don't pray. Now, is God going to advance his kingdom, every tribe, tongue and nation? Absolutely. The thing is, if you don't pray, he's going to find somebody who will. God will finally say, "Okay, fine. I'll find somebody in my kingdom who will pray. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a need to pray because there is a battle going on, a real battle, a spiritual battle. Now, a lot of people think, well, because it's a spiritual battle, it's not a real battle. But it is a real battle. It's more real in many ways as we'll see here in a minute from the book of Daniel, than many of the other so-called battles that are going on. Look at with me at Exodus chapter 17 for a minute. Exodus chapter 17. uh, Verse 8. Exodus 17, verse 8. Now, there are some commentators who don't think this is about prayer. They could be right. But I'm doubtful. (laughs) And even if they are right, I think it can be applied to prayer. So I'm going to go with it. All right. Exodus 17, verse eight. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I'll station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. So Joshua's down in the plain. He's leading the battle. Joshua's the general. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. So the picture is, boys and girls, that when Moses' hands are up, God's people are winning. But when he gets tired... And he droops and he drops his hands. God's people begin to lose in the battle below. Then they took a stone and put it under him, Moses. And he sat on it and Aaron and her supported his hands. Aaron's on one side, hers on the other. And thus Moses' hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So the point is, as long as Moses seems to be in this position, which would be a position of intercession. God's people were winning. Now, of course, this first and foremost points to the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. Let's begin there. Jesus is our mediator and thank the Lord for that, that he's the perfect one praying for us. But that also I think it can be applied, though, that when God's people pray, we often prevail. And when we don't, we don't. Look at Daniel, chapter 10. What goes on in prayer? 
Well, first of all, we know that things happen in heaven. Your prayers are added to the book of incense. Uh, prayers get answered in, in response to the intercession of God's people. We see that battles are won when we pray in the book of Exodus. And now let's look at Daniel chapter 10 real quickly here. And then uh, we'll, we'll look one, one more place in the New Testament. We'll, we'll come to the Lord's table here. Daniel chapter 10. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. Now, he says, I did not taste, I did not, excuse me, eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth. Nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. So he is in a period of lament, mourning, grieving. And he's not allowing himself to eat anything delicious. Okay, I don't, it's not saying here that this was necessarily a complete fast. But at least it was. Oh, it was the, he was abstaining from the best of foods and drink. Now, look at verse 12. So here is a man who's fasting and praying. And then we see that an answer comes. Drop, drop down to verse 12. Then he said to me. Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. So here's a man who's going to give himself to fasting and prayer. And on the very first day that he begins to pray, he gets an answer, a response. But then notice here it gets weird. Verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the king's. Of Persia. Now, there's a lot about this that I don't know, but let's just talk. I think what we can say safely, Daniel begins to pray and spiritual conflict begins. Daniel begins to pray. There is an initial answering of that prayer, but then there is some kind of satanic resistance to that answer coming to fruition. But that eventually the prayer is affirmatively answered. And in verse 14, he says, now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And so more revelation is given to Daniel in response to his fasting and prayer. Now, what, let me say this. You are not to expect special revelation from God Today, by way of fasting and prayer, the canon has been closed and completed until Jesus returns and, and the word of God is sufficient in itself. But by way of application, God often gives new insight into what he has revealed. Let me say that many times the spirit will enlighten, illuminate your understanding of passages in the Bible that previously you found complex or mysterious. Maybe you will get new direction by way of application from the revelation God has given, there are many ways that God does bless his people who seek him in, in prayer. 
So there is fasting, there's prayer, and then there's spiritual conflict. We see fasting also in the book of Esther. You don't have to turn there, but chapter 4, verse 16. Remember the people of God are under great duress, persecution, annihil- they facing an, uh, annihilation. And they get, you know, Mordecai gives himself to fasting and prayer. Uh, we see the early church fasting with prayer before the ordination. Psalm 35, the psalmist talks about Fasting along with prayer. Moses fasted at the receiving of the law. Jesus fasted in preparation for his public ministry. So it may be that God uh, may call you to a day or a season of fasting along with your prayers. Now, what does fasting do? Well, as one commentator has said, fasting is like laying both hands upon the altar of God. It's abstaining from ordinary lawful sustenance. To devote yourself to the purpose of prayer for a specific cause or reason. The Bible also says that such abstinence may include abstaining from marital relations, but that may only be done, Paul says, with the consent of the other. So make sure you have consent. And then Paul says, after that season, the fasting and prayer is over. You come back together, lest the devil tempt you. That is not to be. Uh, Something permanent. I'm not going to spend too much time on this last one because we're coming up to it soon in our exposition of chapter uh, 18 of Luke. But there's one more thing I want to show you tonight. Just real quickly, we'll expound on this in great detail here in a few weeks. But Luke chapter 18 and verse 1 is the parable of the importunate widow. The woman who doesn't give up. Now, notice here in verse 1. That Jesus says that he told them this parable that they ought to pray at all times and they ought not to lose heart. Now, that tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that it is within our nature to want to quit. It is within our nature to think I've been praying for this for months, for years. God's not answering. I just I'm going to quit. I'm going to give up. And here Jesus is saying. That we ought not to quit. And then he gives the story and you know the story and we'll talk about it in detail. But you have an elderly woman. She's a widow. Uh, She does not have the uh, protection of a husband nor the provision uh, of a husband. So widows were much more vulnerable, particularly in that day than even today. And so she goes, she's she's being oppressed by an evildoer. She goes to the judge and she says, I want help. I want your protection. I want you to vindicate me. I want you to protect my rights. This man is infringing on my rights. And the guy, the judge is an unrighteous judge. And he says, this this woman can do nothing for me. She can't contribute to my uh, reelection campaign. Uh, She's not of any great uh, significance uh, socially. Um, Just ignore her. I'll just ignore her. And the story goes on that the woman won't be ignored, however. And she keeps coming back to the judge again and again and again. And she says, I have this case and I want you to hear it and I want you to vindicate me. And the judge finally says, OK, because if, it's not because he is concerned about justice. And, and, and don't take away from that, that God is not concerned about justice. But the point of this parable is it may be for a season. It seems like God doesn't care. OK. It may seem from our perspective that God isn't willing to listen. The point of the parable is you keep persevering. 
not that God doesn't care. He has his own reasons for everything he does. But the point is, is that you need to keep persevering before God answers. The judge finally does give the woman justice. Simply that this woman would quit bothering him. And that's the point. We're supposed to be bothering God. By praying. Amen. Let's pray.